0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart
1: of Washington, D.C. brought straight to you.
2: I now invite Dr. Ted Bromond, Senior Research Fellow in Anglo-American Relations at the Heritage Foundation to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program.
0: Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Dr. Ted Bromond, and it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Ending Interpol Abuse, How the Democratic World Can Fight Transnational Repression. We have a great program in store for you today. We'd hoped to begin this morning by introducing Senator Roger Wicker. Uh, Senator Wicker is the co-chairman of the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe commonly known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission. Unfortunately, the senator had surgery last night and is therefore unable to join us for today's event. But I do want to thank Senator Wicker for his leadership and the leadership of his colleagues, which has been instrumental in exposing and opposing transnational repression through Interpol, most recently through the introduction of the Transnational Repression Accountability and Prevention Act, the TRAP Act. So in your absence, Senator, thank you for your leadership, and we hope to hear your comments on this important issue at a future date. In the Senator's unfortunate absence, I want to turn first to Nate Schenken, the Director of Research Strategy at Freedom House. Freedom House recently published a valuable report on transnational oppression, including through Interpol. Nate, please would welcome your remarks.
3: Thank you, Ted, and thank you to Heritage, and uh, yes, thank you to Senator Wicker. Um, Sorry that he couldn't be with us today, uh, but we very much appreciate his support on this issue, the support of his colleagues on the Helsinki Commission. Uh, I'm going to do a very quick rundown of what transnational repression is, how Interpol abuse fits into that picture, and then I'll hand it over to others. Uh, Transnational repression is when states cross borders to silence nationals abroad. So this is a quite a broad term, encompassing a broad range of tactics that includes assassinations, renditions, unlawful deportation, spyware, family intimidation, Uh, and Freedom House's recent report from February is an attempt to give some sense of the scale and scope of this problem around the world. We counted 31 countries using direct physical transnational repression against exiles and diasporas in 79 host countries. Of those, at least 12 abused Interpol during the time period we examined. So this is genuinely a global problem. Now let me talk about Interpol abuse. This is a specific tactic of transnational repression deserving its own attention. Essentially it's when Interpol is manipulated to act as a force multiplier for regimes intent on targeting nationals abroad. Now why has it gotten worse? Like everything else in our world, technology has transformed how Interpol's notices and diffusions work. Requesting a notice is much more efficient than it used to be, and this ease of use has encouraged regimes to place tens of thousands more of them, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. And distributing the notices is also more efficient, allowing them to reach national institutions around the world with incredible speed. The result is that we see Interpol notices being used not only by major authoritarian actors like Russia or China, but also at an incredible scale by less well-resourced actors like, say, Tajikistan. It is easy, it is fast, and it is essentially cost-free. And we see abuses continuing even long after the problem has become apparent. After the coup attempt of 2016, Turkey became infamous for attempting to upload tens of thousands of notices all at once, which Interpol rightly saw as an abuse of the system and decided not to act upon. However, just this weekend, I was speaking with a Turkish activist about a case of a person who has been detained and is now missing due to a Turkish notice that clearly relates to the coup attempt. In this case, the Turkish government has simply created different criminal charges and used those as the basis for the request. The good news is that there are ways we can fix the system. This includes the TRAP Act that Ted mentioned, which Senator Wicker and others from the Helsinki Commission have just introduced last week. It also includes actions that the executive branch can take. Within our countries, we can make sure that our law and immigration enforcement institutions understand what Interpol is and isn't and ensure that Interpol notices and diffusions are not being used as the sole basis for arrests, detentions, deportations. And at Interpol itself, democracies can use their leverage to improve the organization's governance and limit opportunities for abuse. That's all I have to say. Uh, Thank you for your time for the event. I look forward to the discussion.
0: Thank you very much, Nate. I'd now like to invite Michelle Esland to turn on her camera and join us on screen. Michelle Esland is the founder and principal attorney of Esland Law PA and the founder of the Red Notice Law Journal. She's an authority on in Interpol abuse and its effects inside the United States. Michelle would welcome your
3: remarks. Can you hear me? Thank you so much.
2: Um, I was asked to speak about the abuse of Interpol and its effects inside the United States, and I thought I would touch on three uh, main areas the effects on our citizens, the effects on non citizens, people who are here uh, under asylum or a legal visa, and the effects on our domestic resources. Because what we're seeing inside the US in terms of the effects of abusive red notices differs depending on whether the red notice subject is a citizen or not. Um, If you're a citizen, the biggest concerns, of course, are risk of extradition, um, the inability to bank in a stable manner, and the loss of the ability to travel without detention due to an abusive red notice. For extradition, it's primarily a concern for people with red notices from countries with whom we do have extradition treaties. For people with red notices from countries like Azerbaijan, China, Russia, and other countries without uh, extradition treaties in the U.S., our citizens don't face that worry as long as they stay in the U.S. typically. With banking, the second concern for our citizens, we do see that most abusive red notices are based on financial crime because quite frankly, they're easier to fabricate those kinds of charges. Um, Red notice subjects who are wanted for those kinds of crimes often find that they can't keep accounts at their financial institutions because their names are on a financial risk list that's circulated by data publishing agencies like WorldCheck or LexisNexis. Uh, In terms of work, your profession obviously suffers if you're wanted uh, improperly via red notice people have trouble finding work that requires a background check because the information is either being circulated officially on Interpol's website unofficially on various online sites or some information related to the red notice is discoverable by a federal background check so that's how our citizens are affected by these kinds of red notices in terms of non-citizens you know people who might be here Uh, awaiting um, an asylum application or uh, on a specific visa an investors visa for example people who are in that situation um, they'll have slightly different concerns the red notice for a foreign national means the possibility of detention which we saw more and more over the last four years we're not sure how it's going to play out during this administration Um, but sometimes they'll have a bond issued and sometimes they won't immigration officials often send what's called an RFE, a request for evidence, when a red notice is known. And that requires the applicant to find out the basis for the red notice and explain it to the immigration judge, who may or may not be familiar with abusive tactics used by certain Interpol member countries. Um, it's, it's, if the applicant hasn't already gotten ahead of that process, if they don't know in advance that they've got a red notice, it's very unlikely that the immigration court going to continue a case for the period of time that it takes to both prepare and wait for an answer on that red notice. Extradition is less of a concern for non-citizens because what we typically find is that our government is not going to go through the extradition process, which is a bit more onerous, um, expensive, time-consuming than it would for a removal or deportation proceeding. In terms of the effects of abusive red notices on our domestic um, resources we see that particularly where a red notice originates from a country known for profound human rights violations, our government is being used. It's being used to facilitate corruptly motivated prosecutions um, and um, politically motivated prosecutions. So we've consciously decided against entering into treaties with certain countries precisely because we don't want to participate in uh, a furthering their often illegitimate judicial processes. The red notice system is being used to circumvent the protections that we put in place uh, to avoid extraditing people. And the way that happens is when non-citizens are stopped pursuant to red notices and detained, they are often removed um, or deported uh, based on that red notice. So what we can do uh, to, to remedy this situation in terms of interpol abuse, uh, first of all, obviously pass the TRAP Act, um, as I think will be discussed by, by another panelist, um, the bill is important, it addresses a lot of the concerns that that, um, that arise with respect to Interpol red notice abuse, um, particularly in relation to wasted resources by our immigration system. Um, also, immigration officials need to be trained to understand that a red notice is not an arrest warrant, it shouldn't be char- uh, treated like an arrest warrant, and that the guidelines issued by the Department of Justice need to be used by immigration officials as well. And finally, we need to give extra scrutiny to the red notices that come from countries who are known for their due process and human rights violations. You can find this information uh, on websites for Freedom House, Human Rights Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Transparency International. It's readily available information and we should be training our officials uh, on those issues. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Michelle. I I think uh, together, you and Nate have made a a really important point, which all attendees here should bear in mind. The essence of Interpol abuse inside the United States is that the U.S. police and justice system uh, can be converted into being agents for, for example, Vladimir Putin, or Erdogan of Turkey, or Xi of China. And uh this is a profoundly concerning thing for people who believe in legitimate law enforcement. Uh, we in this country should not be acting as cat's paws for Vladimir Putin. Uh, we have enough problems on our hands without doing his dirty work for him. Uh, let me now uh, turn to Ben Keith and ask him to turn his webcam on. Uh, Ben is a barrister with a firm, 5 St. Andrews Hill in London, uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, He is a leading specialist in extradition and international crime, and has profound knowledge of the use and abuse of the Interpol system by a number of countries. In particular, I commend to the audience his contributions to a recent report on abuses by UAE of the Interpol system. And I invite you to take a virtual podium.
1: Uh, thank you very so much, Ted. I hope you can hear me. Um, I'm just going to speak very briefly about my experiences of uh, investigating and writing a report on the recent uh, issues related to UAE and Interpol, um, and the worrying trend that is. Um, the attempt by the United Arab Emirates to infiltrate Interpol, and manipulate it for their own ends. Um, it, it's something that we, uh, wrote, I read a report with Sir David Coward-Smith, who's a former Director of Public Prosecutions of the United Kingdom. And We investigated um, what the United Arab Emirates were doing in relation to um, trying to influence Interpol. We produced a report called Undue Influence which launched a, a few weeks ago and in that report we examined the uh, issues of, in, uh, of the new presidential election of uh, of Interpol and the candidacy of a man called General Al Raisi who is a former senior uh, political figure in the United Arab Emirates and was uh, uh, has previously been in charge of police and prisons at the time when a number of people have produced uh, or have been tortured and mistreated. And so we looked into the worrying uh, potential that a man who has been implicated or whose organization has been implicated in deliberate torture and mistreatment, particularly in in our respect of British nationals, but but that is not just British nationals, could quite imminently be elected as um, the president of Interpol. And we received information from some leaflets, in fact, that were printed for him, that were were leaked, and that his candidacy was was, was imminent. And so we sought to investigate. And one of the things that we found, and it is in the public domain, it's been discussed before, is the Interpol Foundation for a Safer World, which is an arm's length, purported NGO, which funds Interpol. And into that um, NGO was put a 50 million euro uh, donation um, from the United Arab Emirates, over a, it was for a five-year period of funding, but it is by far the single, uh, the biggest single donation to uh, Interpol, it was noted by Interpol, uh, by the UAE, that the uh, General Secretary of Interpol, Jürgen Stock, uh, sits on the board of the Interpol Foundation for, for a Safer World, as do a number of other uh, political figures. Um, and so we, we highlighted both Major General and um, extremely poor record and the UAE's extremely poor record on uh, mistreatment and torture and also the uh, source of the illicit source of funding. The, the attempt by Interpol to get the president elected and to fund Interpol essentially uh, we say to, to their own ends. We also looked at the way that um, the UAE has in fact, often ignored Interpol and extradition, and has used extraterritorial rendition as well to, to, um, I would say extradite, but to kidnap or or, or extraterritorial or indict individuals who they wanted. Um, So we published that report, there was a lot of press coverage of it, but but interestingly, um, last week we received a a communication in return from Jürgen Stock, uh, who was, uh, and we presume his press office, in in a a, a rebuttal of what we had said, um, but essentially was unable to say anything uh, that we'd said was wrong, other than a few um, typographical and a and, uh, few factual errors on, on the mechanics of Interpol, and in fact said to us that um, he was, uh, Interpol itself was, was, was very glad of the donation from the United Arab Emirates, and they were seeking more donations. Now, of course, Interpol has to fund itself, but the problem is, is that there is no transparency there. Interpol is an extremely opaque organization. And it's for that reason that, that there are real concerns, that not just the UAE, but Russia, China, Ukraine, uh, Turkey, uh, those are the cases, those are the, the, the I ideal would mostly have the opportunity to influence Interpol in a way which in some respects tries to get their, their extradition and Interpol red notices through more easily. Uh, finally, uh, we know, for instance, that the Chinese tried to do the same with the former president, Meng Um, Hongwei. There are credible reports that he was summoned back to China. He then disappeared and then a few months later reappeared, having admitted to uh, some corruption charges. And there are credible reports that the reason for that was that whilst his tenure as president, uh, Interpol, in fact, refused some high profile Chinese red notice requests. And he was blamed uh, directly by the Chinese government for that. Um, that's all publicly available information. But bringing it all together shows that Interpol uh, is at real risk of being subverted by external forces and by states who wish to abuse it.
0: Thank I you very much, argument. Ben.
1: Uh,
0: your 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 comment at the end there about uh, Meng Hongwei uh, and the Chinese leadership of Interpol recalls that we've now had three attempted or successful authoritarian campaigns to run Interpol. Uh, The Russians tried uh, and lost a heavily disputed election in the Interpol General Assembly, thanks in part to U.S. and U.K. leadership. Uh, The Chinese were successful uh, in getting uh, Meng uh, elected to lead Interpol. And now the UAE is launching a very well-funded campaign to try to achieve the same ends. Uh, And these campaigns serve two overlapping purposes. Uh, In part, uh, they are an effort, I do not doubt, to manipulate Interpol inside to secure red notices more effectively, but they are also undertaken as a way to hold the country in question up to the global spotlight and say, look, we are leading Interpol, Therefore, by definition, our legal system and our police system must be beyond reproach because how could we have achieved the success in leading Interpol if we hadn't had it's sort of a a stamp of approval? So this is a sophisticated campaign that serves a number of purposes, all of them sinister. Uh, And you and your colleagues have done a great service by exposing UAE's attempted manipulations in this regard. Uh, Let me now uh, finally turn to Paul Massaro and ask him to turn his webcam on. Uh, Paul is policy advisor on the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is commonly known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission. Uh, Paul played a vital role in crafting the TRAP Act, the Transnational Repression Accountability and Prevention Act, which was introduced by Senator Wicker and a number of colleagues uh, as original co-sponsors in the Senate last week. Uh, Paul, uh, let me invite you to take the virtual podium.
4: Yeah, thanks so much, Ted, and wonderful to be here with such great minds. It really is an honor, and congratulations, Nate, on your recent report. It's a work of art, and I think, really, we've learned so much uh, from from your research on transnational repression. And I'll say just generally that this, this topic of transnational oppression is becoming more and more and more interesting. So, of course, Interpol abuse uh, is is one of the leading forms of this repression, but not the only form. Uh, and I guess I, I think it's always important that we recognize what a, what a wide-ranging topic we're talking about here when we think about how dictatorships are reaching into democracies um, to try to uh, repress political dissidents uh, and opponents. So with, with regard to the TRAP Act, the Transnational Repression Accountability and Prevention Act, uh, we have reintroduced this Congress in the Senate. Uh, we're in a very, very strong position. We have eight bipartisan co-sponsors. Uh, the co-lead is the chair of the commission, Senator Ben Cardin. And then we also have Senators Tillis, White House, Rubio, Markey, Rounds, and Ben Holland. Uh, on the bill, uh, we're doing everything we can to move it uh, rapidly through the process, uh, get it into law. And I think it is very important. It, it, it addresses a lot of um, the issues that the other panelists have brought up um and the biggest thing it targets is this concept of and and the, th- the thing i think that i'm most concerned about generally and we we my, my my bosses tend to be most concerned about is this um is this idea of backdoor extradition that is to say uh deportations uh that are caused by red notices where a political dissident or opponent will sort of just through automated processes uh find their way back to an authoritarian state where they're then uh tortured or killed or jailed or all all sorts of uh, of nasty business so the three goals of this bill generally are to one establish priorities for the united states at interpol that is to say what our delegation there should be doing two, um identify areas for improvement in the u.s government's response to uh to interpol abuse that is to say what we what we need to be doing at home and what we need to be thinking about with regard to uh interpol abuse And finally, um, establishing legal operative mechanisms to protect the U.S. judicial system uh, from from Interpol abuse. So let me go through these uh, one by one. So with the establishment of priorities, we talked a lot already about how authoritarian states have invested so much uh, in trying to take over this incredibly important central international organization. um, And we need to counter that. Uh, But sadly, we've kind of been asleep at the wheel. Uh, It does seem like we've let a lot of malfeasance go on and are just trying to catch up. Um, I think we are waking up getting smarter on this. I think we need to work with allies on this. Uh, This bill requires uh, that our delegation sort of go go about enhancing the screening process, ensuring that key positions uh, in the Interpol hierarchy, including at the Commission on the Control of Files, which of course is the the Interpol Commission that is supposed to be uh, reviewing these red notices and diffusions for abuse. uh, And all these sorts of other key positions are filled with rule of law um, uh, candidates, individuals who respect the rule of law. That Interpol publish better figures on and, and publicly, and publish at all certain figures uh, on some of this uh, abuse, um, and, and 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 all sorts of other ideas like this. So ensuring that we are out there working with allies uh, to fight for the rule of law against uh, authoritarian abuse of this of this organization. Um, so the second piece with identifying areas for improvement, this is the reporting on abuse at home. So Michelle really highlighted uh, how courts need additional information. We need to. The the people making these decisions in the United States need to understand what what is this abuse? What are we talking about? So the U.S. government will uh, publish under this bill a report on Interpol abuse that will look at adequacy of efforts, a description of incidents, uh, incidents, um, looking at the response of the U.S. government, and the advocacy that we're doing. So all of this stuff should inform uh, decisions made and legal decisions uh, around this kind of thing, as well as policy decisions. So it's just good to get more USG information out there. Uh, on this and have people looking deeply into it to inform the policymaking as well as the judicial process. Um, And then finally, and I think personally, the most important part of the bill, the the most operative part of the bill uh, is protecting the US judicial uh, system from the influence of these abuse of red notices. And that is a complete prohibition on using uh, a red notice or diffusion as the sole, as the sole uh, evidence for arrest, uh, deportation, removal, anything like that. Um, so requiring that DHS or DOJ, whoever uh, is is making these arrests, um, go and get an independent, independently verifiable piece of evidence, so that uh, these things can be fairly pursued. So this is this is uh, at least in the DOJ case for arrests um, already the done thing in the uh, in the in the handbook. But it's good to it's in the prosecutor's handbook, But it's good to go ahead and codify these things. Um, but in any case, uh, those are the three main points. And then I should also bring up that a final point. Uh, is having the U.S. Human Rights Report that the State Department does uh, review countries when they do these human rights reviews, look for Interpol abuse and detail Interpol abuse, and I'm happy to report that even without passing the bill, uh, just introducing it and having all the conversations and going through the legislative process last Congress uh, actually led to the State Department putting uh, this in the Human Rights Report. So while, while we will continue to get this codified and try to get it codified, it remains in the bill, um it does look like the executive branch has already kind of uh in this particular sense woken up and smelled the coffee and said okay we need to be doing this and has done it uh so that's very exciting so um that's the bill and then and i guess just one final word to say um i think it's really important that we look at this in the context of the way that dictators are operating transnationally uh both with money both with oppression kleptocracy all sorts of stuff like that um the way that everything is integrated now uh, it's hard, really, to see these things as separable topics. Dictatorships are over there and democracies are over here. Um, so the, the, the Commission has been doing a whole lot on counter-kleptocracy, a whole slate of bills. And I think it's really uh, important for us to be thinking about these things in that context, that, that dictators are up to no good all over the place, all over the West, um, and that we need to have a full-spectrum uh, response, a, a, a whole-of-government response, uh, to these sorts of, to this sort of abuse. So, thanks a lot.
0: Thanks very much, Paul. Uh, maybe I should, before we go into Q and A, just highlight a couple of facts about Interpol, which has really been implicit in all of your remarks, but which I think should be brought out for the sake of the audience. Uh, first, it's important to remember that Interpol, despite what Hollywood says, is not an international police agency. Interpol agents do not carry guns there are even there are no such thing as an Interpol agent. They don't run around the world investigating crimes. They are not policemen. They don't have the power to arrest anyone. Interpol is in essence a very sophisticated electronic bulletin board where police agencies around the world can stick up wanted notices and other police agencies in other countries can go and look at that notice board and act on it or they can completely ignore it. There is no requirement whatsoever to take any action as a result of anything that comes through Interpol. And Interpol doesn't investigate reported crimes. It can't because it's not on the ground anywhere, and it's not within its constitution to investigate within a particular country. And this leads on to the second fundamental problem or fact about Interpol. Interpol assumes that when a member state sends it a report of a crime and asks for a red notice, Interpol assumes, unless it knows otherwise, that that state is telling the truth. So the basic assumption in Interpol is that the government is right. This contrasts fundamentally with the assumption in the Anglo-American system of justice that the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it is right. So the assumption underlying Interpol is completely contrary to the assumption within the British and the American systems of justice. This doesn't make Interpol a bad organization, but it's the reason why red notices should not be used as the sole basis for making an arrest in the United States because red notices are based on nothing more than the unverified assertion of the government that made the request, that's it. If you see a red notice, and I have seen many, you will find that they are based on five or six lines of brief accusation without any supporting evidence whatsoever. You don't even have to supply an arrest warrant to get a red notice. So don't fall for Hollywood's belief that this is, you know, the result of some vast international investigative operation, nothing of the sort. What's coming into the United States and Britain and many other countries is simply a few lines of text from Vladimir Putin's policemen saying, so-and-so was a criminal, please detain, and we're gonna extradite. That's it. So there's a lot less to this, but also a lot more than meets the eye. Uh, We've had a question come in from the audience uh, directed uh, to Nate. Uh, Nate, can you unmute? Uh, the audience member asks, uh, you mentioned earlier that the problem of abuse of red notices has gotten a lot worse recently. Uh, can you give a little background on this and explain why?
3: Um, sure, I'd be happy to, and I think other colleagues here, Ted as well, um, can, can chime in. Um, as I said in the opening remarks, uh, underlying the increase of abuses is a technological shift. So. Um, As Ted just said, Interpol is essentially a very large messaging platform. It's basically a way to share information between police departments. Um, 20 some years ago, this was relatively arduous, um, like all kinds of information sharing in our world. Um, Doing this kind of event would have been impossible 20 some years ago uh, in the format that we're doing it now. Uh, At that time, uh, Interpol did not have the technology to enable people to upload and disseminate these notices and diffusions rapidly. Um, That started changing in the mid-2000s, in the first decade of the 21st century with the introduction of a new system. Um, The new system has made it much faster and much easier. Um, I I don't wanna exaggerate all the way to say that this is as simple as a spreadsheet going in, but it's not so far off um, in terms of what you're being required to do. Think of Google Forms or this kind of process. Um, And you can imagine how quickly and rapidly that can be done. I mentioned the Turkish case. Uh, from 2016, this infamous case. Um, In that case, Turkey tried to submit somewhere 40 to 60,000 names uh, at once uh, into the system. So you can imagine how easy this is um, in practice. So in terms of the number of notices, and you'll see these statistics provided by TED, provided by others, um, referenced in our reports as well, uh, in the first decade, the beginning of the first decade of the 21st century, you would have about um, 1,300, 1,400 red notices per year. Um, you now have about 13,000, 14,000. So 10 times as many. And then you also have the notices and uh, and others that linger in the system. Um, So they remain in the system to be acted upon at other points. And that's something else I want to um, emphasize, because I don't think we've had as much time necessarily to go into all the nitty gritty details, but you have a lot of problems here with data maintenance. So when the system, disseminates these notices or diffusions, and I can clarify that term or someone else can if we'd like to later, um, when those are disseminated to national bodies um, and they enter the national immigration enforcement or law enforcement system in the United States or in the UK or in Germany or France, um, removing them from those systems isn't actually an Interpol function. So you could have a person who has a fraudulent abusive notice entered against them through Interpol. So it goes up through the central place and then it's disseminated out. Then they get it removed at Interpol. They go through a very arduous, difficult legal process that may take a year, may take longer to get that notice lifted at Interpol. And Interpol will send out the notification to say this has been lifted. That doesn't mean it's eliminated from the system it can still linger on in those computer systems based on the data maintenance practices of those different countries all over the world for a very long period of time, and you can have people continue to be detained, continue to have trouble accessing bank accounts, getting visas, uh, getting credit reports, um, all because of the ways in which we we don't take into account how unaccountable and difficult to maintain the system is. So I do think a lot of it does have to do with, in a sense, technology and the an unaccountable and untransparent process that has grown in its power and impact without the oversight that it needs.
0: Thank you, Nate. I mean, if I had to summarize, uh it's really uh, interpol abuse happens because it's cheap, it's easy, it works, and because people learn from each other. Uh the Russians were, I think, the trendsetters on Interpol abuse. But a lot of people have learned from them. Uh, The Chinese, uh, the Turks, UAE, and many other places looked at what Russia was doing and said, hey, this costs basically nothing and it causes our enemies a lot of problems, so let's do more of it. Um, If it works, why not keep on trying? Uh, We have a question uh, which could go to a number of audience members. I think I'll direct this initially to Paul. and uh, the questioner asks, how many problematic presidential Interpol candidates will it take for Western countries to truly wake up to Interpol abuses? Why were lessons not learned following the failed Russian candidacy?
4: Yeah, so it's a, it's an excellent question, and I and I think it has a lot to a lot to do with the fact that like uh, the EU has its own system essentially for cross border law enforcement, and most law enforcement cases in the EU are dealing with European countries that talk to one another via what's called the Schengen information system. That's actually one of the reasons why we now see the United Kingdom getting more interested because they've had to leave the Schengen information system, which is essentially like an EU Interpol, right? So now the UK is suddenly gone and they've exited and they're like, oh, well, we need to get involved in Interpol. Um, The United States has always used Interpol as its primary sort of international law enforcement uh, uh, information exchange system. Um, But it's been alone in that. also, I suppose, with Canada and, uh, but but the, the number of rule of law countries that's, that have used it as their primary system and their really big means of doing this sort of thing uh, has been limited and remains limited. I mean, just because you're suddenly going to get the United Kingdom doesn't mean, you know, you're going to get all these other rule of law countries. So um, it's a matter of prioritization, I think. I think for the EU, their law enforcement system works quite well for them, and they don't worry too much about it, um, you know, so it's, it's incumbent upon us now to light a fire underneath other rule of law states and say, we we as rule of law states um, need to be putting the thumb on this organization um, and ensuring that it complies with its own constitution.
0: Thanks very much, Paul. Uh, another question has come in from the audience and uh, this could go to a number of panelists. Uh, can you address what you see as the role of Interpol Washington US National Central Bureau, uh, the uh, frequently known as the NCB, which is an agency of the Department of Justice in combating misuse of Interpol red notices. Paul, I think you might take that initially, yeah, but but others sure. may wish to weigh in.
4: Yeah, so um so the NCB is effectively can effectively be understood as kind of a US like diplomatic mission to Interpol in one sense. Like it's 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 our major uh, manages our representation there. It's there, it, in a sense, it's 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 Interpol's representation in the United States in one way. Um, it is it it handles the maintenance of the system and that sort of thing. Um, we have spoken with the NCB and 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 would like to see the NCB do take on this function, but the NCB claims that it does not have the resources um, and does not have the mandate or the function to review. Uh, whether Interpol red notices are abusive. And this beyond the resourcing and mandate question, there's also the question of if the United States starts to unilaterally do this sort of thing, do we uh get hit with reciprocity at Interpol? That's this is not my claim, but this is a claim that you know comes out of um comes out of those that work in this space, that will, will people stop respecting our requests on the other side, which which just generally, in the diplomatic sense, often ends up being an issue, the reciprocity problem. Um but for all of these reasons, um, it's it's been hard to push the NCB to be our body to review Interpol red notices. And I am sympathetic to the claim that really it should be Interpol. <laughs> uh, it should be Interpol and Leon ensuring that it is, not, um, it is not abused, and it should be the organization that is not abused and the organization that is rule of law, and it should not be the NCB having to review every single red notice to ensure that or or diffusion for that matter which as nate said you know there's a distinction there but both of them are abused um but you know it should not it should not be incumbent upon them uh to review every single one of those to to, d- to decide whether they're abusive um so that has been a long discussion between the executive branch and the in the legislative branch on how even to structure the trap act because the, the former trap act had a certain number of countries um sending uh, uh uh if you if you if you arrested someone and you had sort of a, if they didn't have an extradition treaty with the united states you'd sort of uh uh, uh well uh send the request to um to the ncb and and you you would you would see whether the ncb says it's abusive or not but um we've eventually we have essentially gone in a different direction now precisely because of this issue of like can the ncb actually be required to review every single red notice which uh, we've come to the we've come to the conclusion of no
0: Uh, I would add that Interpol's rules make it quite clear that NCBs are supposed to play a policing role within the Interpol system, to help keep Interpol uh, following its own rules. But I mean, I would definitely agree with Paul. Uh, The US is not a police agency for the world. We cannot hope uh, to review every single red notice and every single diffusion for compliance the central responsibility rests with Interpol. I think that's very clear, but by the same token, we are responsible for the use that we make of red notices inside the United States. And that's where I think an NCB reviewing function uh, really has to have its locus. Uh, I'm gonna turn next to Michelle. Uh, uh, An individual um, has sent in more of a comment than a question. Uh, but Michelle, you might like to respond to this. Uh, The audience member states, it should be noted that the U.S. individual cannot be arrested due to the fact that there is an active red notice issued on them. Uh, And this is advised um, uh, in the lookouts made available to law enforcement agencies in the United States. Michelle, would you like to comment on that?
2: Sure, and I mean, nobody's arguing about that. Obviously in the US, it's different than in some other countries where we don't treat uh, a red notice as a basis for an arrest in our judicial system. Um, it's actually technically not even enough for somebody to get detained in the immigration se- um, sector. Um, but what happens is you, with respect to the uh, immigration proceedings, that will, the, the red notice, and we're talking about abusive red notices here. Um, the red notice will set in motion a series of events that require us to dedicate uh, manpower hours resources to figuring out should we detain this person should we have a bond do we have a bond hearing um, what's going to happen with this person and now the judge has to look into this and get educated so a whole series of events gets um, uh, begun by the the notice of our detection of a red notice um, in the immigration side. On the US citizen side, um, it's true, you can't get arrested, you have to have a, a domestic warrant. Ted, if I could touch on two things from the last um, question regarding the role of the US. Um, one thing that we, we do see more and more frequently is diffusions being issued and, and, and also country to country communications uh, to kind of get around the red notice requirements. So the US absolutely has the ability and and i'd say the obligation to have a look at that diffusion um, and and inform the other country we maybe do or don't want to be involved in in participating in this with you whatever it is you're asking us to do Um, so we have that capability and the other thing that always drives me crazy is when the us ncb or interpol itself says we don't have the manpower I can't tell you, and I'm sure the other panelists would say the same, how many young, bright, um, eager, idealistic lawyers and free lawyers want to work on anything related to Interpol. It would be very easy to set up a supervised program in our NCB, in Interpol, just to go through and review on just another level of scrutiny, red right? Notice requests or other requests that come in to say Interpol or the NCB. It, it, w- it would not be difficult to do that. It wouldn't be something you have to fund because people want to do this work for free, and these are the brightest minds um, out there. So I I I uh, I I'm very mad about that idea, and I don't think it's true. <laughs> so I think where there's a will, there's a way. That's my point on that.
0: Yeah, uh, Michelle, I think I think that's an excellent suggestion, uh, and I would just add that. Uh, the idea of you know more careful U.S. scrutiny of red notices uh, is not only a savings of resources; it prevents us from being complicit in the crimes of, among others, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and you know, as for the the use of red notices in the United States. Uh, we should bear in mind that a lot of people who are being targeted are foreign citizens who are legally in the United States, dissidents, businessmen who oppose re- regimes and others. What will happen in the United States is the Red Notice is used to cancel their visa or their travel authorization, which then means they're in the country illegally and can then be arrested for the immigration violation, which the Red Notice has created but they're not arrested because of the red notice. And then when they're arrested for the immigration violation, the red notice is brought out as evidence that they're actually dangerous criminals. So the process is completely circular and it results in manufacturing an immigration violation and then using the red notice to pile on. So the audience member is quite correct. You're not arrested for the red notice, you're arrested for the immigration violation the red notice creates, and the red notice is then evidence that you deserve to get booted out of the US. It's a completely circular process. Uh, We're gonna close with one final question, and I think this probably goes best uh, to Ben. Um, And the the question, the audience member says, uh, China uses Interpol as a tool to repress their political enemies. Uh, The Chinese government is not going to accept uh, that they are arbitrary and not governed by the rule of law. How do we deal with this
1: problem? Well, the the difficulty with all international organizations and all international law is ultimately the only solution you have to uh, try and change things is political commentary and political embarrassment. There is no Supernational court that will give you a ruling that says China does not follow the rule of law. I mean, there's lots of good material. There's the U.S. State Department, there's Amnesty, there's Human Rights Watch. Although the Chinese would say, well, they're all they're all biased against us. Um, and it's the same. It's the same in Europe. The European Court of Human Rights is an is an excellent forum which will deliver judgments, unfortunately, many years after the fact, showing that Russia. And many other countries have breached people's human rights by torturing them, but ultimately the sanctions that are involved involve small amounts of compensation uh, and a judgment saying you have uh, abused the system for your own political ends and it's only really when you get regime change after many years of continued uh, involvement in international law that you will get change. And what we have to be really vigilant against is the facade, I think as we spoke about earlier, of uh, repressive regimes or regimes with difficult human rights records, trying to reputation wash by uh, having a president of Interpol, by pretending as China's done in the the Fox Hunt, um, uh, in the upcoming Fox Hunt movie and uh, there's a few articles I've seen that are coming out or going to be coming out on, on in relation to the Chinese anti-corruption, which are, it seems paid for by the Chinese government because they are entirely supported of, of, of that um, initiative and don't mention any of the problematic issues in it, albeit that it's clear the anti-corruption initiative is, is going to catch some people who are committing criminal offences, but they also provide cover all those um, requests for Interpol and those prosecutions which are in fact not genuine criminal offences and are designed to uh, put political opponents or, or business opponents out of business, or in China's case, uh, really just seek control over, particularly in relation to powerful expats. Uh, and so we just have to keep being vigilant, keep reminding everybody that this is not true, Um, Keep a very vigilant eye out on the Chinese PR machine, which is extraordinary um, and is very slick. Um, Because many of these regimes don't care. The UAE are very upset about the report we were published recently because they care about their reputation. And so, as far as I'm concerned, we will continue to expose their corruption until um, they stop torturing uh, individuals. And so so that's, unfortunately, there's no easy solution to it. It is long-term sustained and careful examination of all the facts of each of the cases and reminding everybody that um, not everything, not everything written down on Interpol Red Notice is in fact the truth. Thank you, Ben. Uh, I would just
0: close by commenting that obviously China poses many problems that go far beyond Interpol but if one sticks strictly to Interpol, uh, I don't think anyone on this this panel today would dispute that we need an organization like Interpol. Uh, International law enforcement cooperation when conducted according to the rule of law is entirely legitimate and deserving of support. I don't think anyone here would disagree with that. Uh, The difficulty, of course, is that it's not always conducted according to the rule of law in the case of Interpol. Uh, But Interpol is an international organization that is worth defending and is worth reforming and is worth saving. And I would go further. In Interpol, uh, the democracies contribute about 85% of the money. Uh, We hold the purse strings. The entire constitution of Interpol was written largely to make the United States happy so that Interpol wouldn't be used as an agency of transnational repression. And in in the case of Interpol, we have the budget on our side. We have Interpol's constitution on our side. We have Interpol's rules on our side. If we can't solve the problem of transnational repression in Interpol, we are not going to be able to solve it anywhere else because with Interpol, we have every conceivable advantage. So this is not going to solve the problem of the Chinese Communist Party. But we can do, and we are in a great position to do a lot, about ending transnational repression, at least through Interpol. And in my view, the Trap Act is a valuable contribution towards that end. So again, I want to thank Senator Wicker and his colleagues for their leadership. Uh, I want to close uh, by urging uh, individuals to download uh, the handout, which is available, I want to thank our four panelists, all of them for their tremendous comments today and their varied leaderships on this issue and wish all of you in the audience a very pleasant day and thank you for joining us on this event on ending transnational repression through Interpol on Heritage Events Live.